0: Time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's it's Wednesday. I'm always surprised when that happens. Middle of the week, just kind of pops up on you. Pop! There it is. Middle of the week. Got a good program lined up today, but, but then again, you know, that's what we excel at, right? Yes, yeah. Good programs. Let's see here, working through the list. Let's see, we've got uh, listener email. Um, the uh, what do the TBN folks think that John MacArthur is missing? <laughs> just, yeah, uh, apparently, uh, is it Paul and Jan Crouch? Paul Crouch, you know, he's looking old. You know, you know, I'm sorry, I hate to say that, but it's true. He's looking, he's looking, he's looking a little old. And uh, he he had some things to say about uh, John MacArthur. And apparently he thinks John John MacArthur is missing something. We'll we'll listen to what he thinks John MacArthur is missing. And uh, let's see here. We've got uh, Rick Warren. I've got two articles written on subsequent days, one yesterday, one today, that makes me wonder if Rick Warren is not purposely trying to recast himself in a way that is more appealing to conservative evangelicals. He's taken a shellacking over the years. Uh, you know, for some of the things that he's been doing that have been pretty aberrant, including his scripture twisting. And uh, I've got uh, two articles from the uh, Christian Post uh, where Rick Warren calls the social gospel Marxism. Yeah, I kid you not, he calls, uh, he calls the social gospel Marxism in Christian uh, uh, clothing, and he says that uh, Rick Warren also says he's not satisfied with making abortions rare. So um, all of a sudden Rick Warren is uh, coming out, with his conservative dukes up. And it, what's funny is, is that he's really had a falling out among conservative evangelicals because partly in, in, in part to, you know, his mishandling of scripture and some of the stuff that he's done, inviting Hillary Clinton to uh, his aid summit, inviting Barack Obama to his aid summit. You know, what was really funny, you know, a, kind of a little bit of a side, you know, Rick Warren invited in two subsequent years, Barack Obama first, and then Hillary Clinton, to, you know, his summit on, you know, fighting global AIDS. And he basically says he'll work with anybody. Well, the thing is, is that uh, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton um, vote in favor of uh, keeping abortion legal, which is murder. It is murdering unborn children. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got uh, Barack Obama you know, saying that he's all for fighting AIDS, and at the at the other at the other end of it, you know, he's you know, I'm sorry, but I consider uh, abortion to be a form of genocide. You know, and uh, and so it's it's really weird. We ran a a survey at a little eleven last year, basically saying, you know, now that he's invited Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, you know, to saddleback, uh, who you know, how is he going to top it? And uh, we we put a we, we suggested a few people like Hugo Chavez. Uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. It was, it was, uh, it was Ahmadinejad that won. You know that he should invite him next, yeah, because he'll work with anybody. You know. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, my. So we're we're going to ask the question: Is Rick Warren trying to recast himself in a light that's more appealing to conservative evangelicals? You know, two pieces on two subsequent days: December sixteenth, December seventeenth. Very interesting. Well, he is in South Orange County. Well, yeah, okay, but I. uh, Christian Post is a is a web based uh, news agency. Anyway, we're also going to uh, we're going to take a look at uh, Rob Bell's. Uh, he he is the head teaching pastor. He's the voice of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we're going to take a look at their page called Narrative Theology, and we're going to read some passages from it and basically ask the question: Is this? What is the statement of faith that's there, that they're publishing, and does it really effectively communicate the uh, the doctrinal truths of, of the Christian faith? And uh, then we're going to listen to uh, a bad sermon. Sorry, it's a bad one. From uh, Cornerstone Christian Church in Chandler, Arizona, Pastor Jeff Royce, and the name of the sermon is called The Age of Anxiety. Okay, and the reason I picked this particular stinker is because it it really demonstrates very clearly how uh, so much of American evangelical preaching skips over, a, you just completely avoids the passages of Scripture that proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we get into an epistle, they skip over the first, second, third chapters of each epistle, and they get right to the end to the application part. You know, it, the gospel has no... No play whatsoever in in, the, in these – in the, and so there's strip mining in the scripture. We're going to pay close attention to how he strips mine <clears> – <throat> let me try that again. Strip mines God's word. So we've got a good program lined up today. All right, email. We, let's see. We've got some interesting email. Jack from uh, Rochester, Minnesota. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know this, but it gets cold in Minnesota. Okay. So yesterday we were talking about global warming, right? Okay. Uh, Jack writes. He says, "I heard you talking on the show yesterday about global warming during your review of Richard Seizik's interview." I have one more evidence that global warming is not taking place. One word is Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) He says, we are freezing up here unlike anything I have seen in about 10 years. Uh, Glory to God, that means more time for sledding for my boys. But if someone says we are having global warming, please let them know I would be happy to put them up here for a week during our winter, and then they can try to convince me of it. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, you know, talk about evidence. I put a link up at uh, yesterday's program at uh, fightingforthefaith.com com to uh, an, uh, an article written by or website written by uh, Roy, uh, Dr. Roy Spencer, and he takes a look at global temperature averages using uh, satellite based readings. Okay, so the nice thing about a satellite when it, when satellites do you know can look at temperatures on the planet, they get a more global perspective of things because they happen to be sitting way above the globe <laughs> and uh, according to the data coming out of satellites um right now uh the global temperature is only up one quarter of one degree centigrade overall above normal one quarter of one degree centigrade above normal and then when you look at the chart itself you know that 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 you know is when you watch the trends Remember, I told you that uh, you know back when I was growing up in the in the late seventies, we were hearing about global cooling. You know, early seventies, earlys. Well, there it is. There's the global cooling. If you look at this chart here, you know this was the end of the world. We were all going to freeze to death. The ice age was going to kill our food supplies. This is in the eight, you know, seventy nine, eighty, eighty one, eighty three, two eighty three. I mean, you could definitely see the downturn in temperatures, and then starting in about ninety three, you begin to see an upward swing, and then about two thousand and three it's going down again. Okay. So for the past five years using satellite based temperature readings, the average temperature of the planet has been dropping, has been dropping since 2003. And at current with our current averages, um, the, the, the globe itself is only one quarter of one degree Celsius above normal. You know, what's really funny is, is that I, you know, I live in a coastal town and um, the beaches are exactly the same now as they were when I first moved into uh, San Clemente. What four years ago? You know, I haven't watched the beaches. You know, I the, let's put it this way: the, the 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 ocean level has not risen to the point where it's splashed over Pacific Coast Highway and El Camino Real in San Clemente. We haven't had to redo our beaches at all. In fact, everything's pretty much stayed the same. Anyway. So, yeah, folks, here's the deal is I'm absolutely convinced that uh, the people who are buying into global warming and climate change, that they haven't got all their facts straight. And uh, many of the people I've talked to on this are not interested in facts. They've got their minds made up. Don't confuse us with any evidence. We already know that the planet is experiencing climate change and therefore we have to get rid of capitalism. You know, because it's it's yeah, that's what's causing it. You know, it's apparently an economic thing. All right. Okay. Paula writes. She wrote me on Facebook. She's a friend on Facebook. I would say Paula's a little bit more than a friend. I knew knew Paula before my Facebook days. And uh, she writes, she says, uh, she was listening to the Kung Fu Panda sermon. Boy, that was a, (laughs) we ought to put that into our Hall of Fame for really bad sermons and uh, she, she, Kung Fu Panda, she says, doesn't listening to this guy retelling the Kung Fu Panda movie remind you of so many kindergartens during show and tell telling you about the TV show they watched last night? She goes, Ugh, that's exactly what it reminded me of. And the, the sad thing is, is that the the outline of Kung Fu Panda, you know, of the movie itself was more important than the, the word of God. I think ninety percent
1: of the time he's speaking about kung fu Panda. Yeah,
0: exactly. It was t- or, or more. It's kadoosh, man. It's kadoosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
2: the,
1: the word of God is
0: secondary. Aha! All right, now I got I got somebody, uh, Aaron from Holland, Michigan. He takes issue with some of the things I said because he voted for Barack Obama and he considers himself kind of more in line with the uh, uh, the people that Sizek was talking about. So, listen, Chris, I have to disagree with your uh, views on Barack Obama. I voted for him on the basis of his economic policy. Now see, personally, um you know, I couldn't I can't vote for somebody who who endorses murdering unborn children. I just can't do it. Okay. And you know, as far as economic policies are concerned, um Barack Obama it's clear from interviews and past things that he's said that he's into redistribution of wealth. He's a true socialist. And personally, I think socialism, that fundamental idea that what we're going to do is we're going to redistribute the, the money of the wealthy and we're going to redistribute it to the poor or to the needy or to the middle class. I have something fundamental. There's something fundamentally wrong with that. OK, and that because I consider that tantamount to stealing at the end of a gunpoint. I you know so fifty one percent of Americans have taken a vote and what we want to do is we want to pillage the resources of the rich and make the rich give us their money, and so rather than going and stealing from them ourselves, we're going to make the government do it. Okay, Th- that's just how I see it. Okay, and um, I know that's a slightly oversimplistic way of viewing things, but what I've seen over and over and over again is is that when you really have true socialism in place, it's a disincentivizer for uh, for the entrepreneurial class. It's a disincentivizer for the people who are the ones who create jobs. Why should I create a job? Why should I go and bust my butt and risk everything that I have uh, building a company? If all that's going to happen is if my company's successful, they're going to take my money and give it to people who are not producers. I have a problem with that. Okay. If you want money, go and earn it. You want to climb the ladder in, in life, go get an education, get a, you know, get a better paying job. Put in the time and the resources to make yourself more marketable or whatever. I'm sorry, but capitalism is not exploitative. It basically allows people to choose how they want to earn their money. Socialism is exploitative, and I have a problem with it. He says, anyway, he says, also to expect the the, the kingdom of this world to act like the kingdom of God. Actually, I don't expect that at all. You know, but, you know, I just consider some things to be more moral than others. Um, come on, I would expect better from a confessional Lutheran. also I'm one of those young evangelicals you excoriated. I'm not shallow in my theology or fun obsessed in the least. Um, well, let's let's kind of review that for a second. Um, I think that the young and the leftist, the new young and leftist group of, of evangelicals coming up, um, I don't think they've been biblically trained at all. And who's been training them theologically? The emergence, okay. I know that's a broad brush, but that's exactly what I'm seeing happening uh, out there. So it, so the ones who who have theological sensibilities, they didn't learn it from their purpose-driven uh, youth ministry. They learned it from uh, people like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Shane uh, Claiborne. Doug Padgett, Tony Jones, that's who they're learning their theology from. Now, I don't know if Aaron has, but, I mean, this is a little bit of a broad brush, but this is one of the things I'm seeing. The move to the left has to to do a lot with the fact that uh, purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive churches have done a miserable job of actually catechizing young folks, and that void in catechesis is being filled by socialist liberals like Brian McLaren, who speaks a good theological game. But has some serious theological shortcomings. All right, says after all, I'm a five point Calvinist Baptist, and I don't endorse gay marriage in the slightest. It's just that you can't expect the kingdom of man ruled over by God's common grace to act like uh, God's kingdom, which is run by His electing grace. Now, this, these, you know, I, again, I, I'm not arguing that. Okay, the thing is, is that um, you know, there's certain things I just consider not negotiable. <laughs> certain. You know, And uh, abortion is just one of those hot buttons for me. I cannot, in good conscience, vote for somebody who believes in literally murdering the most helpless among us. Can't do it. Um, if you read a ch- get a chance to read Beyond Culture Wars by Michael Horton in Modern Reformation on, on the September 28th and 21st editions of the White Horse Inn. Yeah, I've actually listened to those. Anyways, even though we may disagree in politics, we can agree to disagree. Let's disagree. Let's agree to disagree agreeably. <laughs> is that That's the, the last part of that. Is that how that works? All right. So anyway, so the, a little bit of follow up from yesterday's program. You know, and, and here's the deal. You know, y- y- don't take my word for it. You know, if you don't like my opinions, you, t- t- my opinions, you can take them or leave them. Okay. But where God's word is clear, we need to be clear. Okay. And abortion is, is murder. And I have a tough time. Supporting any politician who openly, openly, believes in murdering um, the most helpless among us. Yeah, I don't care what their economic policy is. The reality is, is that McCain's economic policy is not all that much different than Bush's. And yeah, and and Barack Obama is a socialist, but it looks like the people he's put in place are kind of like economic centrists. You know, they're a little bit to the left. So who knows what's going to happen? But you know, anyway. All right got a couple of uh articles here talked about them earlier is rick warren trying to recourt the evangelical right it seems like he's uh going out of his way to uh recast himself as somebody who's in the conservative camp and I think there's been some damage done to his reputation, partly—well, not partly, really—because of the things that he's been doing lately. This is interesting. Um, headline: In fact, let's do this. Vintage News. Here we go. You gotta have the up, news update music, right? Yeah. yeah. I feel like I'm watching like one of those uh, World War II news reels. Dun dun dun, dun 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 United States sacks Japan. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, Social gospel is Marxism in Christian clothing, says Rick Warren. That's the headline. Best-selling author, social activist, and megachurch pastor Rick Warren described the social gospel supported by many of the mainline churches as Marxism in Christian clothing. Here's the funny thing. I agree with that quote. (laughs) Believe me when I tell you that uh, the social gospel left... They're Hegelian Marxists. And, you know, Reverend Wright, you remember uh, Barack Obama's uh, pastor? That guy is a full black liberation theology guy. Liberation theology is is Marxism mix, mixed with Christian Christianity. And by the way, once you mix Christianity with something else, it ceases to really be Christianity. Anyway, best-selling author, social activist, and megachurch pastor described the social gospel supported by many mainline churches as Marxism in Christian clothing, Again, I have to agree with Rick. Uh, We don't need to care about, uh, quote, we don't need to care about redemption, the cross, repentance. All we need to do is redeem the social structures of society, and if we make those social structures better, the world will become a better place, uh, explained Rick Warren as he described the beliefs behind those who support the social gospel in his interview with BeliefNet.com, which was posted on Monday. Quote, Really, in many ways, it was just Marxism in Christian clothing. He criticized it was in vogue at that time. If we redeem society, then man will, uh, then men will automatically get better. It I, I, it didn't deal with the heart. Okay, um, now this is where, you know, I, I think my my agreement with Rick Warren is going to start re- wearing thin. So far, I'm agreeing with him. Okay. Warren, recognized as one of the most socially active Christians in the world, did not hold back his criticism of those who call themselves Christians, but seek to make the world a better place by focusing on the body, issues of poverty, disease, social justice, and racial justice, and not the soul. He also disagreed with their counterpart Christians who disagreed the body altogether while caring only for the soul and personal morality. Okay, um... I can, there's there's a little bit of a false dichotomy going on here. Let me explain. Okay, go back. Remember last week we talked about the fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what really what the fundamentalist controversy, you know, or the fundamentalist movement, what sparked it? What sparked the fundamentalist movement was liberalism's move away, deliberate move away from, um, from uh, from biblical Christianity. They they had the social gospel. They wanted to go out and feed the poor and have you know social justice, but they denied miracles. Denied that the Bible's the inerrant word of God. They denied Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. They did, you know and so there, we've got we got a problem. They denied the virgin birth. So the you know here's the deal. They had they had probably what you, what some could argue a healthy respect for. The concept of, of biblical mercy and caring for the poor and standing for justice for the poor, right? Yeah, they were deists. Yeah, but the problem was is that they 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 took the Bible, mythologized it, and turned it into a moral book, and denied you know all the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Okay, so the issue here regarding Marxist Christianity is over and over and over again. What we see is when people. Uh, you know are promoting a social gospel if you were to just take take their car lift up the hood and look at the engine at that thing you're going to see an engine that doesn't does, is not compatible with miracles not comp- compatible with the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ is not compatible with Jesus's virgin birth his bodily resurrection from the dead or anything of the sort Jesus died on the cross to set a good example for us you know uh and Mclaren, you know in his book everything must change he 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 takes the god he takes jesus's death on the cross, and what he does with that is he ba- jesus' death on the cross was such an alarming thing for the disciples to witness, and it caused them to realize the immorality and the and, and the uh and the exploitation of imperial systems and it caused them to defect from imperial thinking altogether i I wish I was making that up. You know but that 's how he describes what what Jesus did on the cross as something that caused people to defect from imperialism because in that book what he's he's he as a true as a real Hegelian Brian Mclaren is suggesting you know hegelianism kind of works with this idea that history moves forward by thesis antithesis, and then a th- synthesis between the two so you've got a thesis that's that 's one thing you 've got an antithesis that's against it you 've got this tension between these this, the thesis and the antithesis, antithesis and the way you make progress moving forward is find a way to synthesize synthesis between those two statements. And so Rick uh, uh, Brian McLaren sorry Brian McLaren in his book Everything Must Change is basically saying we've got to find a synthesis between capitalism and marxism so that we can we can move forward and solve the problems of the planet, and, and in talking about that, he, he characterizes the uh, Jesus' death on the cross as something that shows us the injustice of the imperial system and the global suicide machine, as he calls it. So, here's the deal. Yeah, um, Rick Warren's right that the social gospel is Marxism in Christian clothing, okay? But what he's not talking about, and I, I think it's a very in, it's a very important omission on his part, is he's not talking about the fact that the liberals deny the central doctrines of the Christian faith in their promotion of of feeding the poor and, and making the world a better place. Uh, they deny the miracles. They deny every you know central doctrines of the Christian. He doesn't talk about that. So he, so what he's done here is he talks about the fact that uh, these liberals have, you know, this is Marxism in Christian clothing, and then he says he also disagrees with their counterpart who are Christians who disregard the body altogether while caring only for the soul and personal morality. Now, I'm going to take issue with that, okay? I worked to focus on the family, okay, and, you know, worked there for two years when they were still in Pomona, you know, we were still Pomona, California, and and they had, you know, recently moved from Arcadia, and um, anyway, so uh focus on the family you could call that kind of like the hotbed of this personal morality thing right and i can tell you for a fact in working there there was quite a bit of an emphasis on feeding the poor of taking care of the oppressed you know there it wasn't just only this moralism I mean that we, we participated in reaching out to inner city ministries uh, you know every time a holiday would come around, there were volunteers who were going to different soup kitchens all over the place I think it 's an absolutely incorrect assessment to say that the counterpart of the Marxist Christians, if you can call them that, are people who who disregard the body altogether while caring only for the soul and personal morality i, I 'd reject that statement it's not true okay even when i was a nazarene and boy was it <laughs> that was a fun legalistic uh, adventure but even when i was a nazarene at our church you know there was quite a bit of emphasis of caring for the poor you know and and you know in many different ways and it wasn't just at holiday seasons either i mean we had missions that we were supporting orphanages that we were supporting you know uh, so th- this is not correct. Okay. It's just not correct. So Rick, uh, so the question Rick Warren asks is who is right? Well, in my opinion, they're both right. <laughs> Typical Rick Warren fashion. He, he omits some important data and kind of recasts some things. He's, uh, he says they're both right. Part of my desire as a leader is to bring these two wings back together. I think we need them both. See Rick Warren says I'm not I'm neither right wing or left wing I'm the whole bird. <laughs> That's, he said that over and over again. But I think it's interesting that the uh, Christian Post is basically the headline but it emphasizes his attack on Marxist Christianity. But, you know, I'm sorry but this isn't He says historically evangelicals were leaders when it came to changing society. Rick Warren pointed out evangelicals were at the forefront of the uh, abolition of uh, slavery and they were. Okay? uh with pastors leading that movement. Yeah, the funny thing was is that you know Christians at the forefront of the of the you know of abolishing slavery, they those Christians actually still believed that Christ was God in human flesh, that Jesus was the only way of salvation, that the Bible was the inerrant word of God. They believed all of that and they abolished slavery too. The problem came when liberalism dumped dump, jumps ship on that and bought into German historical criticism. Okay? Okay, our German text. Yeah, never mind. Okay, so anyway, he says uh, leading the movement. It was also evangelicals who were at the front lines of calling the uh, calling for the right of women to vote and protesting child labor laws. Historically true, but those Christians also believed the scriptures. he says, that's uh, my whole job, is I've got to reawaken what I call 19th century evangelicalism, Warren said, noting that Protestantism split in the 20th century with mainline Protestants on the one side of the social gospel and evangelicals and fundamentalists who emph- emphasize morality and salvation. That is not correct. The reason why there was a split is because the, the uh, mainline denominations dumped the central, scrip- the central teachings of scripture, plain and simple. Anyway, so I think it's interesting that he rewrites history. But there's a follow-up article here, and uh, Rick Warren, the next day, which makes me go, why is he trying to court uh, conservative evangelicals all of a sudden? Has he d- conducted some kind of a survey, a poll that finds that he's been on the outs with them and he needs to rebuild those uh, those ties? Uh, uh, here you go. Uh, the, the headline reads, Rick Warren not satisfied with making abortions rare. Uh, From today's Christian Post, attempting only to make abortions rare is not much different than than saving some of the Jews during the Holocaust when all could be saved, according to megachurch pastor Rick Warren. Again, I agree. Of course, I want to reduce the number of abortions, Warren told Beliefnet editor-in-chief Stephen Waldman when he asked if he was going to work with the Obama administration to achieve an abortion reduction agenda or if he thinks that the effort is a charade. But Rick Warren says, quote, but to me, it's kind of a, a charade in that people say we believe abortion should be safe and rare. He added, don't tell me it should be rare. That's like saying the, the, saying on the Holocaust. Well, maybe we could uh, save 20 percent of the Jewish people in Poland and Germany and get them out. And we should be satisfied with that. Warren said, I'm not satisfied with that. I want the Holocaust ended. There we go. So Rick Warren is firmly coming out. You know, he's re- he's reminding people that uh, he has conservative roots. Which basically makes me ask the question: Why is he so? Why are we hearing all of these stories that are painting Rick Warren as this uh, right-wing defender of the faith? Why? Because I think he's taken a shellacking over the past couple of years. So, <clears throat> anyway, just just something I've noticed. right, we're gonna take our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back.
3: It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. a complete waste of my time, I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it.
0: Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way.
4: Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church And discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com.
0: All right. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. My job dish up a Daily dose of biblical discernment. Ask tough questions. Is this what God's word really says? What we're basically doing is these are exercises in being good Bereans. You know what a Berean is? No. All right. It's <laughs> no. A Berean is a reference back to uh, Paul's missionary journeys. What happened is things didn't go so well for uh, for Paul in Thessalonica. You know they pretty much ran him out on a rail. I'm being nice. And um, so he went to Berea, okay? And the Berean church, they really received well the message, the gospel that, uh, that Paul was preaching. And what did they do? They, it says, the scripture says, this, that they, the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians. Because when they heard the gospel that Paul was preaching, they actually examined what he said in light of scripture. They tested to see if what Paul was preaching was really the word of God. And so, what we're doing here, and folks, do this with me too. Don't take my word for it. Um, if I say something you disagree with, send me that email. Let me know why biblically you disagree. So, anyway, I want to remind you: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. And the way you support us is by sending your gifts to Pirate Christian Radio at Post Office Box 791. 791- San Juan, Capistrano, California, 92693. Those gifts that you send help offset our expenses, to help, help us pay our payroll, and make it so that we can expand the outreach of uh, Pirate Christian Radio. If you are literally learning something from, uh, from this program, from this radio station, then please consider strongly supporting us. In fact, uh, would you please support us by uh, sending in your gifts? And believe me when I tell you, I understand times are tough. But, uh, you know, times are tough here too. <laughs> so we could truly use your, your help and your partnership. All right, moving along here, we're going to talk about Rob Belligan. This is the guy who called me a dog. Remember? Anyway, um, he's an emergent pastor and, he, and he's one of these young and the leftist kind of group, you know, people and, um, the emergent church has this supreme aversion to uh, propositional truth claims. They don't like systematic theology, okay, that somehow systematic theology limits God and puts Him in a box. Okay, remember we read that yesterday on this whole Sola Scriptura thing, that somehow Sola Scriptura was limiting truth. Well, n- no, it doesn't limit truth. It limits lies from being mixed with truth. You know so we you know that's the only place where we have a sure, a sure word from God, but um yeah oh, yeah, this is a good point. yeah, I made the point earlier that uh that uh when you mix Christianity with something else, you mix Christianity with Marxism, you don 't have Christianity anymore now John you're an artist, yeah, I went uh, to art school, you went to art school, so uh what happens when you mix two colors together well,
1: they don't retain their color
0: anymore explain
1: well, if you would take a yellow and and uh
0: a uh, blue together, you mix those together. You don't have yellow and blue. You have a new color, green. Green, right? It, it no longer has either characteristics of either color. So it ceases to be yellow and it ceases to be blue. It's a new color. It's a new color, and okay. I think in a very similar way, when you mix Marxism with Christianity, um, it ceases to be really Marxism and it ceases <laughs> to be Christianity. It becomes whammo blammo. It becomes liberation theology. I think it's. It's. I don't think it's coincidental that the voice the emergent translation of the Bible that was just published that we've been reviewing, that uh, they always refer to Jesus as the liberating king. You know, there's some Hegelian Marxist talk right there. And, you know, anyway, so anyway, back to my point. The emergent church, they have this supreme aversion to um, systematic theology, doctrinal statements, propositional truth claims, and instead they believe in narrative theology. Okay, so if you want to know what Mars Hill Bible Church teaches, what they believe, teach, and confess, they have a statement on their website that is their belief statement, and it's called Mars Hill Narrative Theology. Okay, Mars Hill Narrative Theology. Here's what it says I, I believe words mean things, and this is really difficult to figure out what it is that they mean. Here we go. We believe that God inspired the authors of Scripture by his Spirit to speak to all generations of believers. So far, so good, right? (laughs) Including us today. Let me see. We believe that God inspired the authors of Scripture by his Spirit to speak to all generations of believers, including us today. God calls us to immerse ourselves in this authoritative narrative, communally, and individually, to faithfully interpret and to live out that story today, as we are led by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? I don't know. I heard words. Yes. Okay. I I know that I read words. Okay, but it I'm not I'm not that last part of that sentence. I'm not even that second. I don't even know what it means. Let me read it again. God calls us to immerse ourselves in this authoritative narrative, communally and individually to faithfully interpret and live out that story today as we are led by the Spirit of God. Okay. We continue. In the beginning, God created all things as good. He was and always will be in communal relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God created us to be relational as well and marked us with an identity as his image bearers and a missional calling to serve, care for, and cultivate the earth. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. God created humans in his image to live in fellowship with him, one another, our inner self, and creation. So God created us to live in fellowship with our inner self and creation. The enemy tempted the first humans and darkness and evil entered the story. D- darkness and evil entered the story i thought it entered the world i mean all right and darkness and evil entered the story through human sin and are now part of the world okay there we go this devastating event resulted in our relationships with god others ourselves and creation being fractured and in desperate need of redeeming fractured <clears throat> we continue we believe that God did not abandon his creation to destruction and decay rather he promised to restore this broken world this is an interesting eschatology here God promised to restore this broken world as part of this purpose God chose a people Abraham and his descendants to represent him in the world God promised to bless them as a nation so that through them all nations would be blessed. Um, No explanation on how Jesus is the one that blesses all nations through Abraham. In time they became enslaved in Egypt and cried out to God because of their oppression. God heard their cry, liberated them from their oppressor, and brought them to Sinai where he gave them an identity and a mission as his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy people. Okay. Throughout the story of Israel, God refused to give up on his people despite their frequent acts of unfaithfulness to him. Is that statement true? God refused to give up on his people despite their frequent acts of unfaithfulness to him. I just, you know, my question, has he ever heard of the 10 lost tribes of Israel? Um. Okay, history of Israel, real quick, okay? Um. You've got after the, after the Israelites come out of Egypt. Okay, they wander in the wilderness for forty years, and then they the, then you have the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. And after Joshua's generation died off, Israel basically kind of slipped in and out of idolatry and, and got themselves into little sticky places, and God would deliver them through judges. Right, the judges were kind of the ones who were ruling Israel, but they weren't really kings. And what happened is, is that Israel said, forget this. We want a king like every other nation. And it was an evil thing that they were asking for. But God gave him a king and basically said, okay, here's Saul. Saul turned out to be a wicked dude who couldn't walk a straight path with the Lord. And uh, God rejected him because of his disobedience, constant disobedience. And instead, he anointed King David as king. King David reigned for a little bit. He, his, the son of his that succeeded him was Solomon. Solomon, um, well, let's just say that as wise as he was, he had a truckload of, of wives, <laughs> <laughs> which makes me question his sanity, maybe not his wisdom. But um, one of the problems that he has, he, many of the wives that he married uh, were pagan women who followed after other gods. And as a result of, the, of that, they became a snare to him and Israel. And they and what what was Solomon's solution to when one of his wives would say, how come I can't have a place to worship my God? Solomon, it's just not fair. If you love me, then you'll let me have a temple to my own God or a place where I can. And so what did what Solomon do? He set up all these places where they can worship their pagan deities, Asherah, Baal, and all that kind of stuff. And God was furious, absolutely furious. Fit to be tied, and so what happened is, is that God, literally, not under Solomon's reign, but Solomon's son's reign, ripped the kingdom of Israel and literally apart. Okay, and what happened is, is that you have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was Benjamin and Judah, and uh, the, the the northern kingdom was the remaining uh, ten tribes of Israel. Okay, and the northern kingdom, wow, did they get off on the wrong foot? Okay, they built a, you know, they, they had a, a golden idol that they built for themselves that they worshipped. They they really biffed it and dove headlong into blatant idolatry. Okay, you know, the whole prophets of Baal. Okay, that was, you know, the king of, at the time, Ahab, northern kingdom. Okay, you know, his father Omri and it, all of them and, and his son, they wicked, wicked, adulter, adulterous people. And God sent the prophets to call them to repentance and bring them back to faith in in him. They wouldn't have anything to do with it. And so God sent, I think it was the Assyrians, but I could be wrong here because I'm doing this from memory. Basically sent another nation to take them out of the land and they were gone. Okay. You ever heard of the 10 lost tribes of Israel? Seriously, who 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 claims their lineage is from Asher? You know? you know? They're gone. So, this little bit in the in Rob Bell's narrative theology, throughout the story of Israel God refused to give up on his people despite their frequent acts of unfaithfulness to him, that's not exactly keeping with the narrative. Cuz what I just basically told you was a narrative summary. Was it not? Yes. Okay. And um and the Southern Kingdom they 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 dipped into idolatry too. God said enough is enough, and uh, under King Jehoiakim, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and took them into captivity for seventy years. Right, but uh, the northern kingdom—they're gone. They are gone. Okay. <clears throat> we continue now in this narrative theology page from Mars Hill Bible Church, which is an emergent way of looking at theology. Um, God brought his people into the promised land. Their state of, uh, their state of blessing from God was intimately bound to their calling to embody the living, uh, to embody the living God to other nations. What does that sentence mean? To embody the living God to other nations. Can you tell me what that sentence means? No. It, it sounds like that sentence I always use all the time. Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, we've got, we got a noun, we've got a verb, you know, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. There's words there, but I have no idea what that means. God was intimately bound to their calling to embody the living God to other nations. No, no clue. No, I, they made movement toward this missional calling yet. They disobeyed and allowed foreign gods into the land, overlooked the poor and mistreated the foreigner. Okay. The prophetic voices that emerged from the Scripture held the calling of Israel to the mirror of how they treated the oppressed and the marginalized. That isn't exactly a full statement either. Let me. The prophetic voices that emerged from the Scriptures held the calling of Israel to the mirror of how they treated the oppressed and the marginalized. Uh, not exactly true. Okay. If you have a computerized Bible, and if you don't, you can go to something like BibleGateway.com, and what I recommend doing is just doing a simple word search and look for the, the word in the Old Testament. And the word you're looking for is whore, whore, as in prostitute. Okay. Now, what's really funny is, is you're going to find that the word whore, um, rarely in the Old Testament actually refers to physical prostitution of a woman who sells herself, you know, for, um, for money. Instead, the over and over and over again. If you really understand and you read the prophets, they were calling people back to God and faithfulness to Him. The abandonment of idols and in and God uses the word horror to describe their false religion. So, um, according to Mars Hill's narrative theology. The prophetic voices that emerge in scriptures held the calling of Israel to mirror how they treated the oppressed and the marginalized. Can I look up the word "marginalized" in scripture? Hang on a second, here. Let's uh, eyes. See if I can find it. Nope, doesn't exist. Okay, but let's let's do a little let's do, let's have a little fun here. <clears throat> when you look at the word "whore." or its derivatives, um, listen to this. Exodus thirty four fifteen, the first place where the word whore <laughs> occurs in the Scripture. Exodus thirty-four, fifteen: lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited to eat of their sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons and your daughters, whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Talking about, uh, the, the, here, Exodus 34 is about not, you know, allowing Israelites to marry people of other of the pagans than the Canaanites who live in the land. Why? Because three times between verse fifteen and sixteen, it describes idolatry as whoring after whoring after other gods. Um Leviticus chapter seventeen, verse seven. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Uh <laughs> Um, numbers 15, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after their own heart or your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after (laughs) over and over again. In scripture, we have this wonderful word whore and the, the God sent the prophets to tell Israel that they were guilty of whoring. And I'm not talking about physical relations with a prostitute. That's not what the prophets were talking about. And he wasn't talking about oppressing the poor and the marginalized. Okay? So this um, narrative theology is missing some important narrative. Okay? Through the prophets, God's heart for the poor was made known. No, through the prophets, God's heart for Israel was made known. And his anger at their whoring after other gods was made known. And we believe that God cares deeply for the marginalized and the oppressed among us today. Really, you, I don't know how anybody who claims to have read the prophets, minor and major prophets, it, claiming that the, minor, the major theme of the message of the prophets was one about uh, how they mistreated the marginalized and the oppressed. No, it was about whoring. 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 Jeez. Ah, jeremiah isaiah ezekiel hosea oh yeah poor hosea <laughs> this you ever read hosea let me read just a little bit of hosea because this is actually a fun little book hosea let's take a look at how much the poor the oppressed and marginalized are mentioned in hosea Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Baari, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Okay. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Go find yourself a prostitute, make her your wife, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So when. He, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for it is, it is just a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Okay, so he Hosea the prophet is taking a whore for a wife. And what does this represent? It represents how Israel has whored after other gods. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Um you know, not that I know anything, though I just work here. Um, so Jezreel means God scatters. By the way, and it's here used to reinforce the announcement of judgment on the reigning house. Okay, and uh, and on that day I will break the bow, the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Uh, so Gomer she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, or Lo Ruhamah, uh, Ruamaha. Okay, which means no mercy for I will no, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord, their God. And I will not save them by the bow or the sword or by the war, uh, war or by horses of horsemen. And when she had weaned uh, her daughter named no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I'm not your God. Over and again, when you read the prophets, the prophets were sent by God to call Israel back to the Lord. What was their primary sin? It wasn't it was n- not caring for the oppressed. It was that they had abandoned the Lord and followed after false gods and were engaging in idolatry, which the Lord calls whoredom. All right, so there's something wrong with this narrative theology. It's missing some really key pieces of the narrative. I detect a social gospel here all right okay now we continue with the um okay so the uh, the prophetic voices that emerged from the scriptures held the calling of Israel to the mirror of how they treated the oppressed and the marginalized through the prophets god's heart for the poor was made known, and we believe that God cares deeply for the marginalized and oppressed today. In Israel's disobedience, they became indifferent and in turn irrelevant to the purposes to which God had called them. They became unpurpose-driven. Uh, for a time they were sent into exile, yet a hopeful remnant was always looking ahead with longing and hope to a renewed reign of God where peace and justice would prevail. Does this... is Okay. Where peace and justice would prevail. We believe these longings found their fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, mysteriously God having become flesh. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted and to set captives free, proclaiming a new arrival of the kingdom of God, bringing about a new exodus and restoring our fractured world. Anything about sin and repentance and faith? Didn't hear it. No, I'm missing that, too. He and his message were rejected by many as he confronted the oppressive nature of the religious elite in the Roman Empire. I think he's been reading Brian McLaren. Let me read that again. He and Jesus and his message were rejected by many as he confronted the oppressive nature of the religious elite in the Empire of Rome. Really? Okay. Yet his path of suffering, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection has brought hope to all creation. It has? Um, Jesus is our only hope for bringing peace and reconciliation between God and humans. Okay, that sounds Christian-ish. This next sentence is a little troubling. Through Jesus, we have been forgiven and brought into right relationship with God. My question is, who does that apply to? I suspect that uh, Rob Bell is a closet universalist. So when he says, Through Jesus we've been forgiven and brought into right relationship with God. Christ died for our sins, and we are saved by grace through faith. That's what's missing here. Okay? God is now reconciling us to each other, ourselves, and creation. The Spirit of God affirms as children of God all those who trust Jesus uh, where's repentance? The Spirit empowers us with gifts, convicts, guides, comforts, and counsels, and leads us into truth through a communal life of worship and a missional expression of our faith.
1: So we get things.
0: What does that mean? And the church is rooted and grounded in Christ, practicing spiritual disciplines. Oh, really? Where are the spiritual disciplines in Scripture? I don't know. No, I don't. not the ones he's promoting. Lectio Divina and uh, the... Uh, prayer examen, which was Ignatius Loyola's thing um, mm-hmm. and celebrating baptism in the Lord's Supper. The church is a global and local expression of living out the way of Jesus through love peace, sacrifice and healing as we embody the resurrected Christ who lives in us and through us into a broken and hurting world where is repentance and the forgiveness of sins?
1: It's... I didn't hear it in there
0: yeah. All right. We're gonna take us. We're gonna take our second break, and we come back. We're gonna we're gonna read the read the last paragraph of this narrative theology, folks. If you can send me a, do you, Do any of you have the Rob Bell decipher pen? You remember the little orphan Annie deciphering, you know, pe- you know the, the thing you can, you know, you can get a cipher code, the de- decoder ring, line. decoder ring. That's what I'm looking for. If if any of you guys have a Rob Bell decoder ring, I could really use it about now because there's all kinds of language in here that is just foreign to the scriptures and foreign to my Christian ears at this point. I I don't feel like I'm hearing historic Christianity. I feel like I'm hearing some of that social go- gospel, that Marxism stuff. Anyway, um, if you want to email me, you can. And you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back.
1: Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
3: This is the air I breathe. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
1: My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus flock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at newreformationpress.com or the big picture audio presentation, Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible.
0: Okay, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith and uh, today we're... Right now we're in the middle of reading uh, the, is this the statement of belief? Is that what you can call this thing? From uh, Mars Hill Bible Church, this is Rob Bell's church and where Rob Bell is the head teaching pastor and uh, they've got this thing up there called narrative theology and, uh, you know, because those emergent guys, they can't stand propositional truth claims. Boy, I'll tell you this, so far what I've read is just Muddy. Muddy and muddled, and I have no idea what some of these words mean. Nothing beats the Nicene Creed, you know. And, <clears throat> let me read this uh, creed to you. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, Light of Light, Very God of Very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and is glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic or Christian apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Simple. Well, a lot less words. Why Why do we have to constantly try to reinvent things? And all Scripture-backed. All backed with Scripture. Yeah, this actually, this is a nice piece that we have here that... Uh, We ought to make this available somehow. We'll we'll come back to that. Remind me later. There's a resource we should really make available. So there, you know, I'm sorry, but the Nicene Creed stands head and shoulders above this narrative. And this is a selective narrative. This is not a complete narrative. This is a very select narrative that focuses on the oppressed and the marginalized and kind of skirts over the issue of sin and repentance and the forgiveness of sins and idolatry and false religion and all that kind of stuff. But at the, the the last paragraph is very interesting. Listen to this. So, you know, John, just real quick. Okay. Um, if I, if you had to make a decision right now, when Christ comes back, is he going to uh, destroy the earth or is he going to make this current planet like pristine and, and uh, perfect? What do you think is the biblical position? Start over. He's going to start over. So he's going to destroy the earth. Yeah. All right. Listen to this. We believe the day is coming when Jesus will return to judge the world and bringing an end to injustice. Like Batman, is our big problem injustice, or is it sin and rebellion against God?
2: God, God's Batman.
0: Yeah, so God, yeah. <laughs> apparently Rob Bell's deity dresses up in bat costumes and, and is out there fighting injustice. Uh, Jesus will return to judge the world and bring an end to injustice and restoring all things to God's original intent. What does that mean? Um, God will reclaim this world and rule forever. The earth's groaning will cease and God will dwell with us here in a restored creation. On that day, we will beat swords into pl- into tools for cultivating the earth. The wolf will lie down with the lamb and there will be no more death and God will wipe away all of our tears. Our relationships with God and others and creation will be whole. All will flourish as God intends. This is what we long for. This is what we hope for. Uh, we are giving our lives to living out that future reality now. Is this historic Christianity? What is this? Anyway, so t- is, is God going to destroy the earth or is he going to restore it? Destroy or restore? Okay. Um, for your consideration, please. All right, you ready for this? 2 Peter chapter 3. What are the three rules of good biblical hermeneutics? Context, context, context. 1 uh, Peter 2 uh, Peter chapter 3 verse 1 This is now the second letter I am writing to you beloved in both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay. Verse seven there says that the current heavens and earth are stored up for fire now if that doesn't convince you let me continue reading but now do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the lord one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years as one day the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that anyone should perish but that all should reach repentance you know repentance is never mentioned in this narrative theology nor is the forgiveness of sins really mentioned either Uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Does this sound like a restoration to you or a destruction? Destruction. Yeah. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, so is God going to restore the earth or is he going to destroy it and give us a new heavens and a new earth
1: well in 13 it says new heaven, new earth
0: yeah, new heavens, new earth and the old ones uh, get to melt away it's a very terrifying picture of what the end looks like, isn't it? very I mean, who should we trust? should we trust Peter or we should trust Rob Bell and Mars Hill?
1: I'd go with the apostles
0: yeah, go with the apostles, yeah yeah, that's what I think too. So scripture's pretty clear that um, there's no restoration. It's a death and a resurrection. Just like we die and Christ raises us from the dead and we have new bodies that live forever. The heavens and the earth are going to pass away, be destroyed. They're going to die and God is going to resurrect them. In the same way, new heavens, new earth. But uh, Rob Bell says uh, um, that uh, God will reclaim this world and rule forever. The earth's groaning will cease, and God will dwell with us here in a restored creation. It's a new creation. It's different. Restoration is different. Restoration. You know what restoration is, folks. You ever you ever uh, live in an old house? You know, you know. There's some great fixer uppers on the market right now. Okay, a restoration is a house that's really old that needs to be completely overhauled, gutted, restored. And what happens is, is you tear down the walls, you get rid of the asbestos, you uh, you get rid of the carpet, you take out all of the old fixtures and you put in new walls, new wallpaper, new paint, new lights, new fixtures, and you've got a restored house. Is that a new house? No. no. It's, from the point of view of the neighbors outside, it might go from being an eyesore to being something that, that looks like a decent place to live, right? But still, it's a restoration. Okay? Um, Jesus is going to take the wrecking ball to uh, planet Earth and the heavens and destroy them. Remember the, false, the stars fall from the sky, the sun no longer gives its light, the moon turns to blood, all that kind of stuff. And it says here in Second Peter that the, uh, the elements melt, everything's, you know... Jesus isn't going to restore the earth. He's going to take out his cosmic wrecking ball, raise the thing to the ground, so to speak, and in its place, he's going to put in a new heavens and a new earth. Right? That's what this says. Anyway, so um, I find Rob Bell's, or Rob, sorry, Mars Hill's narrative theology to be not only confusing, a vague, ambiguous But I also think it's selective and wrong. I think we're dealing with a different beast altogether as far as his brand of Christianity. This doesn't feel look, sound, taste, quack, or anything like like historic Christianity. It feels distinctly different. All right. Well, what we're going to do now with the balance of the program is, you know, these are tough days that we live in. I don't know if you've noticed, but the economy has gone into the toilet. And boy, let me tell you, folks. We're feeling it. <laughs> and, you know, if if you've lost your job or your company's about to close or you're experiencing financial distress, boy, let me tell you, we feel your pain. Okay? And so, you know, in a situation like this, I mean, wouldn't it be relevant for a pastor from a relevant purpose-driven church to tell us about how to overcome anxiety? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, because everyone's feeling it, right? But we're going to play this... Uh, This sermon, it's called The Age of Anxiety. It's from Cornerstone Christian Church in Chandler, Arizona. It's a purpose-driven church, likes to follow and purchase sermons from uh, Granger Community Church, which is one of the flagship purpose-driven churches out there that has resources available on the web. And we're going to hear the uh, pastor, Jeff Royce, preach a sermon called The Age of Anxiety. And what I want you to pay real close attention to in this sermon, aside from the fact that Jesus isn't really all that there, okay, he's there as a moral example, and what he's doing is he's strip-mining God's word, okay? And this is my problem with this type of preaching, is what, we're, you, know, you know what strip-mining is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. You can do that in several ways, and one of the ways you can do it is like with a hose, Okay. You know, what you ba- or, you know, what, if you've seen some of these, these pit mines that they have for gold mines, you basically you get, you get big old dump trucks, these ginormous dump trucks. You take huge amounts of earth. You dump them into these dump trucks, and then they drive it off to a place where everything is separated. And what happens is, is that literally all of these cubic yards and cubic tons of earth, at the end of it, you've got maybe an ounce or two of gold. And what have you done to get, you know, to get to that ounce or two of gold? You've blasted away and thrown out everything else, right? Okay. These guys strip mine the scriptures and the thing they treat as dirt that gets thrown away is the gospel. Okay. And, uh, these guys, when they read the epistles, who cares what Philippians one, two, and three says, let's get to four. Okay. Okay. So watch, really, listen, I mean, watch, this isn't television. Listen very carefully to uh, what Jeff Royce does here. And this is kind of a quintessential evangelical sermon that strip-mines the scripture, but pay close attention to how he uses the, uh, God's word here. So here it is, without any further ado, The Age of Anxiety by Pastor Jeff Royce.
2: Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Jeff Royce. I'm the teaching pastor here at Cornerstone. And this morning, I'd like to share with you from my heart about anxiety, a subject that is something that I've struggled with in my own life. We live in what's called the age of anxiety, and no wonder when you think about the economic crisis in our own country, and where is this all headed, and does anybody really have any answers to the situation, and then when you begin to think about some of you, maybe even here in this room this morning, have lost your job in the last few weeks, and some of you may Have a job, but you're wondering if you will have a job in the next few weeks or few months. And then we hear and see things like we did this past week, the terrorist attack in Mumbai, India. And we hear the threats uh, to the New York City subway and all of that. And no wonder we live in an age
0: of anxiety. All right. Stop for a second. Um, Ask this simple question. Are we beginning with God's word or are we beginning with a topic? Uh, I think we're beginning with a topic here, and uh anxiety is the topic, and he's just found um he's strip mined the scripture to find things that'll help us with this topic of anxiety. Yet if he had taught God's word in context exegetically expositionally, um he would uh he he wouldn't have uh, missed you know he would he would get to this also. And this is kind of a gospelless context for this, but let's continue.
2: Well, when I thought about this, I thought, does the Bible talk about anxiety in any way? And if so, what does the Bible say about anxiety and how to handle it? Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the book of Philippians this morning, to Philippians chapter 4
0: beginning at verse 4. Yeah, we're going to skip over all the gospel sections of Philippians and we're just going to get right to that life application part. All right, here we go. Philippians chapter 4. Because I believe the Bible does give us a prescription for anxious hearts, a prescription for anxious hearts. So we're reducing God's word down to a set of tools, a set of propositions, a prescription. It's like penicillin. John, you you're on a Z pack right now, right? Yeah. Okay. And so you know, if if uh, you're ill, you need to go and get a prescription. So Philippians chapter four is a is a prescription. It's like an ointment. It's like a it's like antibiotics. You know, if you follow the prescription properly, then you will get rid of your anxiety problem. You know, so rather than having a rash, you have anxiety, and, and the way you get rid of it is by you know going finding what the prescription for it is. You know, <clears throat> and that the Bible
2: gives us tools coping coping mechanisms that we can use to overcome the anxiety, the fear, the doubt, the
0: worry that can- Coping mechanisms. That's a weird way of putting it. I thought the scriptures give us Christ. Right? Or was Jesus just the perfect example of the person who properly applied all the coping mechanisms properly?
2: <clears throat> and paralyze our lives... And give us peace. I do want to say this before we look at these tools this morning.
0: Okay, coping mechanisms that if we apply to our lives gives us peace. Is that the peace that scripture talks about? The peace that comes from properly following prescribed coping mechanisms? Or is it peace with God? I'm serious. Let's see what he does with this. It is imperative that we understand that
2: Paul here is writing to Christians, and the reason that's important is because it
0: is only
2: through Christ
0: and the power and strength that he supplies. Okay, this is good. He's talking about Christ and the power and strength he supplies? Hmm. Can I put this into practice? Ah, okay. So here it is. Christ, you've got to use his power to put these things into practice so that you can experience peace. Jesus is the supreme uh, advice giver so that you can overcome your anxieties.
2: What is being recommended to me? I I could never do this on my own. I could never do this long term in my own power and in my own strength. But as I rely on the power of Jesus Christ, I can truly put this prescription into practice. That's
0: why Paul said... Okay, so this this is not just a prescription that you have to follow... But it's empowered by Christ that so, you know, it's you know, that's the active ingredient. Jesus Christ becomes the active ingredient in making this prescription come to life. In verse 13
2: of Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, because what we're going to talk about here this morning is not something we would ever be.
0: OK, <clears throat> Philippians by the way, um, Paul writing to the Philippian church. Let me just hit a couple of highlights in the earlier part of Philippians. Don't ever read just an epistle. Just don't don't ever just go to the life application part of it because all the life application stuff that's in the in the epistles is always in light of the gospel. It really is. Okay, so we got uh, Paul beginning in chapter 1 thanking uh, God in his remembrance of the Philippians. And he prays that their love may abound more and more with, with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so, you know, he talks about uh, the fact that, you know, his arrest is caused to advance the gospel and, and you know, and he's rejoicing over them. And then we get to this great path, you know section um, regarding, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind also among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was he was in the very form or nature of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of humans or men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross." Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, you got this great Christological passages. In, in the opening sections and then you've got that whole section where Paul talks about watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh and he says that we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ and have no confidence in our flesh. Though he, that Paul, has uh, reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law he was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church and as to righteousness under the law he was blameless but whatever gain he had he counted as a loss for the sake of Christ indeed everything for the loss of uh, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and for his sake he suffered all loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So th- that's just a quick synopsis of what we see in-, in Philippians chapter one, two, and three. Notice that chapter three, it's all gospel. So before we get to four, by the way, uh, the epistles—they're all written to Christians, right? Why, if if the gospel isn't so if, isn't important at all, then why is it that Paul always preaches the gospel to Christians in his epistles? All right, this is a simple question there. So, let me read chapter four now in context, and we'll see how he does here. This is Philippians chapter four. He told us to turn there. Let's read it in context. Starting at verse 1 Therefore my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved stand firm thus what's he referring to the righteousness of Christ salvation by grace through faith I entreat Lydia and entreat Synthy to agree in the Lord yes I ask you also true companion help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life rejoice in the Lord always again I will say it again rejoice Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Now, here's the question I have for you. In light of what we read in in Philippians chapter 3, a synopsis, again, of salvation by grace through faith alone, through Christ alone, and that we have his righteousness and we're called to stand in that faith, then this rejoicing, this not being anxious, and the peace of God which surpasses all understandings that guards our hearts, is that something that we concoct or is that a fruit of the gospel and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Answer? It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is not us concocting this. This is really a fruit of our faith. This Paul is admonishing these people to acknowledge what's there. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and and how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this, all of these things are, they're they're literally grounded in faith in Christ, a faith that doesn't have a righteousness of its own that comes to the law, but a, a faith that whose righteousness is Christ's righteousness and is a gift. So he's really, Paul here is saying Christ is all in all. And these are not prescriptions that are, you know, activated by Jesus and his strength. These literally are fruits of our faith that's grounded in Christ and the gospel. Big difference, by the way, big difference. He's just strip mining. Well, let's continue with his uh, (laughs) sermon here. So now that you've heard this in context, let's see how he uses it.
2: Be able to do on our own. It's like the person who may even be physically sick and also emotionally just weak and fragile and, and giving up. And they could go to a doctor. And the doctor could prescribe some medicine for them to help them physically. But if they're emotionally not in a good place, they might not even take the medicine, even though it can help them to feel better. What, what Jesus says to us through the pages of Scripture is, I not only am going to give you the prescription, I'm going to give you the power to empower you
0: to put the pr- prescription into practice every day. So Jesus is kind of a new lawgiver that get, that empowers you to put into practice a, these prescriptions.
2: Hmm. So the first tool I want you to see this morning is in verse 4, and that is rejoice in the Lord. And if we missed it, notice Paul says, oh, and
0: again I say rejoice. Well, Pastor Royce, can you give me some kind of a context for why I should be rejoicing? It's... This there's there's no gospel context here. When Paul says rejoice in the Lord, what are we rejoicing about? The righteousness given to us by Christ by faith, the free gift of salvation, not by works. Rejoice in the Lord, right? Has he mentioned any of that? When you read it in context, that's what that that's what the rejoicing is referring to. But this is rejoicing for rejoicing's sake. I'm sorry, but when I rejoice in the Lord, I rejoice for the sake of the gospel. I rejoice for the sake of the fact that Christ has rescued me, washed me of my sins, set me free, paid my penalty, propitiated the wrath of God. Uh, and this is, this is a contextless rejoicing that this pastor is giving us. And instead, he's using this as a tool for overcoming anxiety. Was the reason why, in in context, read the passage, is the reason why Paul said to rejoice in the Lord so that you can conquer and put into practice the prescription of uh, anxiety conquering? I don't think so. You see, the first tool that can help us to begin
2: to calm our anxious hearts and overcome the worry and fear and
0: anxiety in our lives was Philippians written to a bunch of anxious people. No, it wasn't. It wasn't written to anxious people. Why is it he's taking this first tool, rejoice in the Lord always, and somehow acting as if that the reason why he's saying that is so that uh, you can overcome anxiety?
2: Hmm. Is to choose intentionally and consciously to rejoice in the Lord. I might not always be able to rejoice in my circumstances. I might not always be able to rejoice in what's going on in my life and around me, but I can always rejoice in the Lord. I can always find in him
0: things to, to find my joy in. I can remember. Such as, give us an example. <laughs> can you name one? No, he doesn't name one. <laughs> I can name a few. Christ died for my sins, according to the scriptures. He died and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. There are some things to rejoice about. He's clothed me with his righteousness. He's forgiven me, declared me to be righteous, said I'm innocent. Taken my sin away from me and cast it as far as the east is from the west. Those are some things to rejoice about in the Lord. But uh, he says rejoice in the Lord because we can always have some things to rejoice about in the Lord. Can you give us an example
2: how great he is, how good he is, how majestic he is, how magnificent he is. And I can always find things to
0: rejoice. Those are very vague, aren't they? Very. How big is Jesus? Oh, he, oh, he's about six foot four, 210. <laughs> Those are abstract concepts.
2: In him. That's why the Bible reminds us that the joy
0: of the Lord is my strength. And what would that joy be based on? The gospel. I truly want to be
2: strong and and have a life of stability in this world where it seems like daily and weekly things are going up and down. And I don't know what the next day is going to bring. That the way I get that stability and strength is by choosing through the power that Jesus gives me to rejoice in the Lord. Oh, yes. Again, I say
0: rejoice.
2: And notice then the byproducts of choosing to pick up that tool and rejoicing in the Lord.
0: Okay, because rejoicing in the Lord always, that's a tool. It's like a hammer or a screwdriver or a circular saw or a power drill. And if you properly use it, there's some byproducts of using that tool.
2: Verse 5, he says, let everyone see your gentleness. Another word we could use there in place of gentleness is reasonableness. And the reason why that's important and how that ties in is because many times external conflicts are born out of internal conflicts. If I'm all agitated and churned up and worried and fretting on the inside, guess- is this a group therapy again?
0: Yeah. yeah, this is this is group therapy. That's what I do a lot of times. I take it out on people. Is he licensed to practice group therapy like this? I don't know. Yeah, I wonder. People around
2: me, I'm short with them. I, I. I'm an angry, you know, I'm upset. And so many times I, I'm not a very reasonable person to my family and friends. So if I can learn to get this internal conflict settled down, if I can learn to begin to experience this internal peace that God wants me to have, it's also going to make a difference, not only inside me, but it's also going to make a difference externally in my relationships. Hmm. And then he goes on to say, Oh, and the Lord is near verse 5. Well, isn't the Lord always near me? Yes, but when I choose by the power of Christ to rejoice in the Lord, I sense the presence of God in a way that I don't any other way.
0: Huh? <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonable be reasonable be <clears throat> reasonableness that's a tough word. Say that 10 times fast. Be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Um, I don't know if that's right. Let's continue.
2: It's not that God is any closer to me, but as I choose to rejoice in him, because the Bible teaches God inhabits the praise of his people. And there's something about choosing to rejoice in the Lord and to magnify him, even when it hurts, even when I don't feel like it, because I'm not supposed to live my life by my feelings, but by faith that as I choose to rejoice in the Lord, God seems even closer to me. His, his presence seems to
0: be right there. And that's one of the you want to experience the, uh, the presence of God. Don't need to do Lectio Divina just. Is it really, is, is the emphasis of the Lord is at hand that you can experience God? Reach out
2: and touch someone.
0: Reach out, reach out and touch someone.
2: Byproducts of tool number one, rejoicing in the Lord. Tool number two, verse six, prayer. Notice what
0: Paul says. Do not be act. Anch- tool number two. He's these turning this wonderful gospel passage that's grounded in the gospel and turning it into law prescriptions and tools that you can do and and th- and he's guaranteeing results anxious about some things now that's not what
2: he says he says do not be anxious about anything instead in most situations no scratch that it says instead in every situation through prayer and petition with thanksgiving tell your request to god paul simply saying jeff Stop worrying and start praying. Start praying. The, the word anxious here literally means to be pulled apart. And that's even how we describe it sometimes. You know, my life, I, I feel like I'm being pulled apart. God never wanted any human being to live their life feeling like they were being pulled apart by anxiety, by fear, by worry, and by doubt. God wants to give
0: us his peace. Where does that peace come from? Jeff? And
2: one of the ways that we can enjoy this peace is not only by rejoicing in the Lord, but by choosing prayer instead of spending time worrying.
0: You know, again, in light of the gospel, prayer is a natural thing for Christians to do. He's turning it in... It, it's, it, it, this is not... This is not prayer in, that is literally grounded in the gospel. This is prayer done for my purposes to make me feel better. It's 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 a recipe. It's a set of rules, it's a set of tools. And if I do these things then I'm going to experience the benefit of it.
2: In fact, you know, Jesus even said does worry really change anything, but prayer can
0: Prayer can change things. Even... No, that's not what the passage says. Good night. He he was kind of, sort of quoting the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew. Hey, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, gotta find it here. Uh, there we go. It's okay. Let's see here. Forgive others when you fast. Do not look gloomy. Light the eye of the lamp. Okay, hang on a second. I gotta find the word worry in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, did I? <laughs> here it is. Okay, here we go. Listen to this from Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, which talks about worry and anxiety. By the way, in fact, much clearer than Philippians, but all Philippians counts as something that at least the topics brought up. Jesus says, Therefore therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? that Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, in talking about anxiety, he's pointing out the fact that anxiety really comes from the fact that you have no faith. And what are we to have faith in? Where are we to put our faith? Okay? Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles run after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek first God's righteousness? That's a proclamation of the gospel. It's a proclamation. Again, Jesus' solution to anxiety is the gospel itself, the gospel that tells us that in God we have a merciful Father who sent Jesus, his only begotten Son, to die for our sins and says that you can trust me, have faith in me, Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And a lot of people, when you hear seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, that means that we have to get busy and start being perfect so that we can have, you know, so that God will add these things to us. No, the admonition here, Jesus is saying these people have little faith. And unfortunately, Pastor uh, Royce here is not pointing us to faith in Christ. He's pointing us to faith in following a prescription that God, that Jesus will empower you so that you can feel better or, quote, experience the presence of God, which is not really clearly taught in the text. The solution to anxiety is the gospel. It really, literally is forensic justification, a righteousness from God.
2: <sighs> Let's
0: see where he goes. Okay.
2: Even if it doesn't change my circumstances, prayer can change me to be able to handle my circumstances better, to, to build into me a strength that maybe my circumstances don't change, but I change through prayer. That's why Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, men, women ought always to pray and not to faint. The word faint means to give up, to lose heart, to throw in the
0: towel. And prayer is now a law that you have to keep so that you can feel better.
2: Many people are teetering right now. They're, they're, they're fragile. They're faltering. They're, they're not stable. But their knees are shaking and knocking. And they're wondering what tomorrow is going to bring. And one thing that can bring strength and stability into our lives is prayer. Through prayer and constant communion and communication with God, we can build up our strength. Notice here also in verse 6, he uses four different words for prayer. The first one is just the general word, prayer. It means to talk to God. Sometimes when we're going through hard times and anxiety is gripping our life and fear is gripping our life, we do one of two things. We either, like a turtle, retreat into our shell and we isolate ourselves and we try to deal with it by ourselves, or we talk to everybody else but God. And God says, shouldn't the first thing you do is talk to me?
0: Talk to me. Pour out your heart. Communicate with me. Actually, the call there is really, for God is saying, trust me. Put your faith in me. I died for your sins. I'm giving you righteousness. (sighs) Yeah, communion. Yeah, exactly.
1: (sighs) That should be one
2: of the first things we do. We as human beings have many coping mechanisms, many tools that we use to try to deal with life, life's up and downs.
0: Is Philippians 4 about coping mechanisms?
2: Our anxieties, God is saying, I'll give you some tools. I'll give you some different tools than what you're used to using.
0: One, rejoice in the Lord and two, pray. Yeah, so Philippians 4 says God, I'm going to give you some God says I'm going to give you some tools for overcoming anxiety. Number 1, rejoice, number 2, pray. Those are the tools. This is a prescription, a list to follow. A set of principles to keep. Or is this the fruit of faith that Paul is trying to cultivate?
2: Pray. Notice the second word is petition. In verse 6, this word speaks about the worship of prayer because the word petition simply means I acknowledge that you're God and I'm not. I I acknowledge that you're in heaven and I'm on earth. I acknowledge that this is too big for me. I can't handle it. I need your help, God, so I'm petitioning you. I, I am coming to you acknowledging that this is bigger than me. I can't beat it on my own. I can't handle it on my own. I need you, God. That's what the word petition means. And then the next word, appropriate for the time of the year in which we are thanksgiving. That as we pray, thanksgiving should always be a part of our prayer life and talking to God.
0: No, I completely agree. But what are we giving thanks for?
2: That we should always come to God thankful. Thankful for what we have. That God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Such it-
0: as forgiveness of sins, mercy,
2: in heavenly places. And and there's so much that we should and could be thankful for, even if it doesn't always equate with earthly, physical, material things.
0: Can we be thankful for Christ forgiving us of our sins completely? Again, this is he's not grounded in the gospel. Yet Philippians is firmly planted in the gospel.
2: That's why. In being thankful, I was sharing with the mine on Tuesday night, you know, God is so faithful that most of the time it goes unappreciated and unnoticed because that's the way we are with each other.
0: Can you give us examples of how Christ was faithful? Some really clear gospel examples of how Christ was faithful. How about his keeping the law perfectly for us? How about the fact that his word says he'll never leave us or forsake us or that his forgiveness covers all of our sins? Contrast that with our faithlessness and our rebellion against God and our sinfulness. Are you hearing repentance and faith here? I'm hearing good advice, but I'm not hearing good news.
2: I mean, if you're a faithful person and you just go to work and you just do your job and people can count on you and you're just that rock, you know, you can start to look around and go, you know what? Nobody really appreciates
0: me or I I go pretty unnoticed because I'm just always able to be counted on. So that's Jesus. Jesus is the guy who can always be counted on, and we just don't appreciate him. Isn't the job of a pastor to proclaim Christ's faithfulness so that we can give thanks to God for his great glory and the things that he has done?
2: Think... Think about how God feels about that. When every day the sun comes up, every night the moon comes up, the tides go in and out, the heart keeps beating, he keeps filling the lungs up with breath, and over and over, thousands of times throughout the day, God is faithful to me, but it goes unnoticed and unappreciated. So God wants me to have a Can, uh,
0: can you say sin? Hello? Uh, you just going to gloss over that? Like, that's a huge problem here you're bringing up. And what's his solution to this? Um, Wait. Let me back this up so we can hear it in context. And over and over, thousands of times throughout the day, God is faithful to
2: me, but it goes unnoticed and unappreciated. So God wants me to have a heart of thanksgiving and thankfulness to him when I come into his presence.
0: And then the final word is... You know, somebody who who focuses on the gospel, how can you not pray with thanksgiving? In fact... Folks, I defy you, meditate on the gospel, meditate on the fact that Christ died for your sins and that he was buried and raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Christ died for your sins. do that, focus on Christ, focus on the gospel, and I defy you to not to that you know to not pray with thankfulness as certainly as day follows night when you have a faith that is grounded on Christ and what he has done for you, you can't help but be thankful. You can't help but rejoice. And you can't help but thank the Lord that you have peace with God through the shed blood of Christ. But that's not what he's preaching.
2: The word requests, which speaks about how specific God wants me to be when I talk to him. God doesn't want me to talk to him in generalities, but in specifics. I mean, if you and I have a, a close relationship with somebody, we're going to get past the generalities, past all the surface stuff. We're going to get to the core issues. We're going to talk in specifics to each other.
0: And, you know, and, I'm glad he brought up this relationship. Okay. If you have a good relationship with somebody, do you have to sit there with a list of things to tick it off? Okay. In order to have a good relationship with this people, a person, I need to uh, speak uh, specifically with them. No doesn't that just automatically flow from a great relationship?
3: Yes. It's a fruit
0: of it. Okay? He's turning this into some kind of a prescription, a to-do list of things that you've got to do, and then you will feel better and you won't have anxiety in your life because you've done the things that God has told you to do through the power of Jesus. But that's not what's going on here. In the passage, these are all fruits that flow from the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, not having a righteousness of our own that comes through the law, but through the righteousness by faith that is in Jesus Christ. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness. I defy you to not rejoice after knowing that. I defy you to not be thankful after knowing that. I defy you to think that you can't go to God with very specific requests after that, knowing that he died for your sins. You have peace with God. How can you not go to him in prayer and share with him specifically the things that you're anxious about or fearful about or your needs or requests? By faith, we can approach God as our Father, knowing that He cares for us and loves us and promises to take care of our needs. How can we not be specific? You see the difference? One flows from the gospel. This is just a to-do list. God says, if you and I have a personal relationship with each other, that's the
2: way we should talk to each other. Don't talk in generalities. Talk in specifics. Bring your specific request to the Lord and pour out your heart to him. And choose prayer over anxiety and worry. And then notice, verse 7. The result of tool number one, rejoicing in the Lord, and tool number two, prayer, is that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.
0: Uh, what is the peace of God? What does that mean? It's this peace of knowing that God is no longer angry at me, that Christ has forgiven me, that I am a child of God. There's a context for this piece, and that piece always flows from the gospel. Yet this is a gospelless piece that he's promoting. It's a law-based piece of applying rule number two, tool number three, and you'll get result number four. A piece the Bible says that we really
2: can't describe or even comprehend. It's beyond human comprehension, beyond human description. That's why even for someone like me who lived many years not experiencing the peace of god and now i am experiencing the peace of god
0: because i've allowed god to work in my life it's even harder who's in control there he is i experienced the peace of god because i allowed god how about christ knock you to your you on your butt knock you to your knees drove you to your knees in despair of your self-righteousness and your sin hmm hard for me to
2: explain what that is. And yet, my goodness, what a drastic contrast between living a life without the peace of God and living the life with the peace of God. The peace of God literally means the word peace, tranquility of mind. And that's what God wants to give every human being. Not just a relationship with him. Not just that our sins are forgiven and we're on our way to heaven. But God wants us
0: to... Oh. Uh, not that our sins are forgiven. That was an afterthought. The sins forgiven, That. Nah, that's just, uh, that's not the real thing. The whole thing. That's the whole thing. How can you take the, the sins, your sins forgiven, and make that just a toss-away sentence?
1: Why was Christ crucified?
0: Uh, for our sins. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, you're starting to sound like me. ay 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 to be able to navigate life with tranquility of mind. Okay, I'm going to back this up, and we've got to listen to this in context. Is watch, the gospel is the throwaway. It's not the real thing. The real thing is something else.
2: God, because I've allowed God to work in my life, it's even hard for me to explain what that is. And yet, my goodness, what a drastic contrast between living a life without the peace of God and living the life with the peace of God. The peace of God literally means the word peace, tranquility of mind. And that's what God wants to give every human being, not just a relationship with him, not just that our sins are forgiven and we're on our way to heaven. But God wants us to be able to navigate life with tranquility of mind, no matter what's going on in our lives or what's going on in our country or in the world.
0: But see, that tranquility of mind comes from the forgiveness of sins. And he just used it as a throwaway line. Not just the forgiveness of sins. Blah. Who needs that? I want the real thing. Ay, ay, ay. These people don't know what to do with the gospel. It's so alien and foreign to them. They, You know, literally, it's their... They, they, and they just don't know what to do with it. It doesn't fit within their, the puzzle of, you know, because here's the deal. God wants to give you peace, but you've got to apply these tools if you want it. Ay-ay-ay. A tranquil mind that's beyond what we
2: can understand. That's why when we begin to put these tools into practice through the power that Christ supplies, we can't even figure it out. It's like, man, I used to be worried about that. I used to be all upset, and now I'm not. We, we, it's even hard for us to verbalize. What's going on? And then I love this in verse 7. He says that this peace will get to a point where it will guard your heart and mind. That word guard is a military term. It literally means that as I begin to put the tools of rejoicing in the Lord and prayer into practice,
0: that a garrison will sort of go around my mind. That he- <sighs> Okay, excuse me. Um, I'm getting a little upset. <laughs> oh man let me back that up because you've got to hear it and i've got to respond to it in context listen to where this piece comes from okay listen to him and let me back this up just a little bit here we go and then i love this in verse 7 he says that
2: this peace will get to a point where it will guard your heart and mind that word guard is a military term it literally means that as i begin to put the tools of rejoicing in the lord and prayer into practice That a garrison will sort of go around my
0: mind that even prevents those. So if I'm faithful to applying these tools, then God will guard my heart and mind so that. uh, Boy, that's backwards. Um, I'm going to freak out here in a second, but uh, let's see here. Let me find the passage I really want. Uh, (laughs) Romans chapter five. This is a great passage. Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The source of peace is not our applying these tools. The source of Christian peace is our justify, is the fact that God has declared us to be not guilty by faith in Jesus Christ. And through that, we have peace with Christ. That's what it says. Instead, he's turned peace into something that you attain by applying these tools. But that's not what the Scripture says. And Paul, earlier in Philippians, expounds on the gospel and justification by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes to the law. And this guy has now turned peace into something that's contingent upon you applying these principles. It's not grace alone. No, it's not. Let me read Romans 5 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces uh, uh, perseverance and endurance, and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why? Because of our justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ.
1: Christ does it. Yeah. Not us.
0: Right. God gives us peace. through,
1: And he's he's having you do it.
0: Yeah. This guy has us doing these things in order to get peace. But Christ is the one offering us peace purely as a gift. I could go on. But I think we've kind of beat that horse to death, haven't we? Anyway, so if you want? More, in fact, I, what's funny is, is listening to this. Uh, this would actually give me more anxiety rather than less because if I'm not properly applying these tools and how you know and following this list, then I don't get to have peace. And if I'm not having peace, it's because I'm doing something wrong. I I, I must I must be doing something wrong because I haven't properly uh, put these tools into practice. And, and 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 now what am I supposed to do? Right? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. All right. If you would like to email me and let me know how you've attained peace through all of your perfect application of these particular principles, you can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless.